Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, this is Melissa Legge. I'm a third-year student at the Yale Law School and the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. And I'm here today with uh, Frances Beinecke. Very, very pleased to have her join us here. Um, a little bit about Frances. She graduated from Yale College in 1971 and received her master's from the Yale School of Forestry in 1974 and has remained very involved as an alumna, including serving as a member of the Yale Corporation and on the Leadership Council of the Yale School of Forestry. Uh, and then she went on to NRDC uh, after graduating from the Yale School of Forestry and served there for a number of years. She was NRDC's executive director for eight years and then went on to serve as president of NRDC from 2006 to 2015, and she is now a senior fellow there. In addition to that, she served on the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill and offshore drilling after being appointed by President Obama. And she is a member of the Secretary of Energy's Advisory Board and the Advisory Board of the MIT Energy Initiative and the National Academy of Sciences uh, Staff Committee, a uh, number of things there, as well as being on the board of the World Resources Institute. And then, as if all that wasn't enough, she's also recently written a book about her time at the Natural Resources Defense Council and her vision for the modern environmental movement. The book is called The World We Create, A Message of Hope for a Planet in Peril. So welcome. Um, we're very glad to have you here today. Thanks. It's so great to be here. Um, so I, first, I wanted to welcome you back to the Yale School of Forestry as, a, as an MEM student there myself. And um, I wanted to ask you, um, what, what does, brought you back to the School of Forestry this year? Well, first of all, I finished my term as Yale's pre I mean, not, not, excuse me, I finished my term as NRDC's president. And uh, I'm thinking about what my next steps are. And the Yale School of Forestry is a great place to be because it's where I started in this movement, and it's full of stimulating people, young people who want to make a career in this field. And I feel like we are really in a moment of generational transfer where those of us who've been in the field for many decades, in my case, four decades, it's time to turn over some of that learning and really work with the next generation of people who will be taking on very important leadership roles. The challenges are so huge. And I've learned a lot along the way. So I'm just very much enjoying my time here and just talking to the students, talking to the faculty, finding out what's current, what's new, and also sharing my own experience. Great. And, and you also uh, are leading a class called Diverse Voices in Environmental Leadership. Um, what was your inspiration for that? Well, in that case, I really uh, wanted to bring a number of people that I've worked with in the field who are really broadening the base of the environmental movement, particularly in the area of climate change. I've worked in an environmental advocacy organization, NRDC, for the last 40 years, and we have a very central role to play in developing policy initiatives around key environmental issues such as climate change. But in order to actually get policies adopted, we need so many other voices, so many other areas of expertise to bring to the table. And that's something that we at NRDC and the movement has really worked on expanding over the last five years. And I, these are people who are really wonderful. They're leaders in their field. And I wanted the students at FES to be exposed to them. And um, 
so turning to your your time at NRDC, you've talked about how in the last five years you've really seen a great expansion of engagement of diverse voices around climate change. Um, can you talk a little bit about the trajectory of engaging diverse communities in the environmental movement over your four decades there and how that's changed? Yes, well, it's, let me just say it's changed a lot. And I think that uh, particularly in the area of climate change, which I really see not as an environmental issue, but really a societal issue, an issue um, that covers the breadth of uh, the human experience and the future of the planet, that um, in order to really uh, develop uh, the policy initiatives and build public support, we have to engage everybody from the religious community to the labor community to uh, people you know, across all kind of ethnic and economic uh, experiences in the United States and internationally. So... It's really been a pleasure, actually, to reach out and make these partnerships. I think we've gotten a lot better at it. Um, at a group like NRDC, where we were so in the policy space, we'd had less experience in those partnerships. But the partnerships are really essential. I think to build the political muscle in order to get policies adopted, we just have to have a much stronger, broader, deeper movement than we've had to have in the past. And I think uh, leaders in the environmental community are very aware of that, are really focused on it, are working hard at uh, developing those alliances and really understanding where other interests come to these issues. They don't necessarily come through the lens that an environmental organization might come to it, but their uh, passion for it, for example, from the religious community or the environmental justice community, it's different, but it's just as strong. So it's it's really been, I think, a great um, kind of expansion and deepening of, uh, of a movement that needs to really look to the future about how to accomplish change. What do you think it is that's different about climate change that requires or draws or attracts a lot of these diverse partnerships that you're saying, you know, this is really coming together in the field of climate change? Um, what, what is it different about climate change versus, you know, clean air pollution or, well, Air pollution is obviously not clean, but but versus um, some of the other traditional issues that um, NRDC has worked on, like air pollution, land conservation, or um, maybe not so much land conservation as, as biological conservation and issues like that. Well, I think the thing about um, climate change is that it is just so comprehensive. It literally affects every aspect of the human experience and our natural systems. So in order to really address it, which is to reduce our emissions significantly and create a energy future that's carbon-free and technologically different, um, requires tremendous societal change. It's not cleaning up a problem. It's actually transforming the most fundamental enterprise, which is creating energy, which the entire economy and every person depends on, fundamentally changing that. There's nothing as um, significant as that kind of societal change. So mm -hmm. it really requires just tremendous resolve and creativity and innovation and determination across all sectors to address it. And, you know, I think um, one of the things that really shifted for me was really understanding, in the beginning, I think we looked at climate change mostly through a scientific lens, uh, you know, carbon's increasing in the atmosphere and the temperature is climbing and it's going to have significant impacts on the ecosystem. But then 
understanding the significant impacts it would have on people, particularly poor people around the world, and how ill-equipped the developing world was to deal with these impacts uh, from a problem that had been largely created by uh, the developed world. That's changed now as much of the world develops. Everybody's generating carbon, so that kind of um, north-south divide is, I think, it's still there, but it's now everybody's problem uh, in a much more comprehensive way. So that's, I think, why it's a very, very different issue, because it is going to affect the future in such a significant way that we have to join together to address it. And and I think that's, you know, what you're saying about um, bringing together diverse voices. Um, it's going to affect everyone. Everyone's sort of coming together. We're also seeing increasing leadership from, say, Pope Francis with his encyclical. We're sort of seeing this um, massing of, of um, interest and uh, support for movement on climate change. Um, but but then we still have this sort of barrier of um, policymakers who are seem to be entrenched in um, trying to not ma- not have change happen, trying to to not get. Um, for instance, um, I think Jeb Bush announced the other day that his first step, if he were to be elected, would be to repeal the Clean Power Plan. Um, how how do you see sort of the the coalition um, working together to overcome that political barrier? Well, first of all, that political barrier exists largely in the United States and not in other parts of the world. There might be other parts of the world that don't have the resources at this point or aren't ready to address climate change, but they're not denying it. And they, there's so we live in a very strange country where a uh, one party has decided to take on this issue in the most negative way, even though increasingly the poll numbers on the side of the Republicans show that majority of Republicans actually think climate change is real and actually think we need to do something about it. So, you know, we're in, we're in a bizarre situation here in the United States when it comes to the political um, reality of how climate change is being treated. I actually think that is beginning to change. Uh, part of it is that the energy sector in this country is changing anyway. The uh, coal is going down because of the abundance of natural gas. There's a lot more renewables being uh uh, you know, created all over the country at very fast numbers. The price is coming down. People really since 2008 and the economic downturn just understand the benefits of efficiency uh, in a much greater way. And there's tremendous innovation going on in the energy sector. I mean, I think, you know, when I go to the West Coast or in other parts of the country outside of Washington, D.C., there's so many people who are applying themselves to try to figure out what are the energy solutions that we can create and create this clean energy future that will be very different than what we have now. So I, I think that th- this kind of this leadership of the Republican Party that's climate deniers and want to um, get rid of the clean power plan, they're a very narrow group heavily funded by the fossil fuel industry remnants. I mean, there's a direct money power relationship here. But I actually don't think that reflects where the American public is or the reality that a lot of people around the country are experiencing now from the changing climate, whether it's the drought in California or it's the floods in South Carolina that recently took place. There are extreme weather events happening all over the place. Not all of them are attributable to climate change, but some of them can be. And so as people see the changes, they know we have to prepare for it. We're going to be spending a lot of money in this country on infrastructure in the power sector and in our cities and communities 
how that money is spent over the next you know 10 or 20 years whether it's spent with climate change in mind and figuring out how to make our communities more resilient than they have been you know people on the ground in uh, local cities towns counties they're wrestling with this right now even if the politicians in Washington DC you know are screaming about it in the House of Representatives that's not happening in communities across the country they're wrestling with a very real problem and they know it so I think as those solutions get put into place the politics are going to change and I think they're beginning to change now so is that is that one one of your um, messages of hope for the planet in peril well I think one thing about uh, working in the sector is um, you know, over time, you do see changes. I mean, it, whether if you look at, in five or ten-year increments, you see changes, changes in where the public is on the issues, what policies are possible. So, you know, I'm just an optimist by nature. I think for people who work in the sector, they really need to be optimistic because if you read the indicators, a lot of the time they're pretty um, frightening, and I think you cannot be discouraged by that. You just have to believe that there is a path forward and bit by bit uh, create that path and make a contribution to it. And change does happen. I, you know, as I mentioned, the, uh, the incredible uh, just deployment of renewables around the country, the price change in photovoltaic cells over the last few years, it's astonishing. It's fantastic. And, you know, so if that happens very quickly, more can change quickly. And I, I think harnessing uh, what is going on and you know, really understanding where the public is, uh, making sure that, you know, there's kind of strong education and awareness. Things will change. And, you know, I I mean, listen, I am as aware as anyone else that things are not changing quickly enough, that we're not, you know, it's very hard to stay within this two-degree goal that uh, the UN has set. But in my view, you know, the best you could do is do everything you can to change that day to day. And that's what uh, my career has been. And that's why it's been really so rewarding because we've seen progress and we'll see more. And, you know, there are all these people coming through Yale University from in the law school and the forestry school who are really committed and will also make a career to this. And that makes me hopeful. Well, that's great to hear. Um, and I'm wondering, to follow up on that question, as, as someone who is currently um, – at this institution, planning to graduate in in a year and a half and go into the environmental field, um, what what do you what advice do you have for people like me? Where where do you think we should uh, devote our our efforts or or look to to build our careers? And also, uh, on a related note, is there an is there some sort of core competency that the movement is lacking right now that we should be building skills in? Well, I think um, two things in the answer to that. So first of all, I think that the opportunities are so broad for people coming uh, out of these schools now uh, who are interested in the environment. When I was at the Forager School 40 years ago, uh, it just wasn't that broad a field. You know, corporations didn't have sustainability programs. There were brand new, uh, you know, environmental protection programs in the state and at the federal level. It was just a pretty small field. And now the field is so much broader. I, I mean, really, whether you go into the not-for-profit sector, into the corporate sector, into government, they're just, or you know, even into academia, there are just many, many more opportunities. I think the thing that's different now is, I think um, when we started out, when we didn't have nearly the expertise that people have now, because there's so much more knowledge. There's 40 more 
years of knowledge, which is kind of exciting. That's one of the things that's very exciting about being here. Uh, but secondly, I think that the interdisciplinary nature, the intersection of the different fields, the need to work together is different. I think when we were here, we thought, oh, well, you know, we're going to become a conservationist or we're going to go into the environmental sector or we're going to work on pollution. And, you know, these things were pretty separate and the world, I think, just is naturally pretty siloed. Uh, I think in this field, it's much less siloed now. And I think that that will be true going forward. I mean, you can't be an expert in water or agriculture or energy without thinking about how that area intersects with other areas. You know, everything is connected. And having a more systems approach, understanding the connections that a solution in one area may create a problem in another area, or at least what are the consequences one to another, is really important to understand. I also think, uh, I mean, I've spent a career in an environmental organization, the best in the business. I've loved every minute of it. It's been fantastic. But there's there are many other ways to be involved and make a contribution. And um, I think that actually gives people lots of opportunity. There's, you know, I don't think there's anybody in this country, This, I mean, I say this, I'm sure there may be somebody, but you know, everybody thinks that they are entitled to clean air and clean water, healthy food, and uh, a good environment. That's just part of what it is to live in the United States now. That's something that we've achieved over the last 40 years, which is really, it, it um, is such a privilege when you go to other countries around the world that haven't been able to make that um, investment. Uh, which is what it really takes. It takes a very big kind of financial government investment to succeed in that kind of uh, areas we have in our water and air, not in climate, I grant you that. But, um, you know, there are just huge opportunities to improve the environmental condition for the benefit of the, of people all around the world. And I just think that creates a wonderful platform. Also, people graduating now, they're just much more global. I mean, they have had lots more international experience. It's sort of, you know, so the, there are just many opportunities around the world. The opportunities are not solely here, just to a much greater degree than when I was a student. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to go back on something that you said about um, NRDC and um, how you, we have so much more knowledge now than we did 40 years ago when you graduate. And, and also, you know, the environmental laws have developed so much since the early 70s today. That's most of our environmental law in this country has developed in that time. And uh, NRDC has been at the forefront of all of it and has done huge amount to, to develop um, our, our knowledge and our, our political, um, our political policy structures to deal with environmental issues. And I'm wondering, do you think, you know, NRDC as, as an organization that has relied a lot on, on litigation and policy work to, to make those great accomplishments, do you think NRDC will continue to focus in those areas going forward or will, con or will expand um, into being m more of a, a communications and engagement focused or collaboration or... So, you know, that's a great question. And NRDC's expertise is really in the policy sector. The staff are largely, not only, but uh, lots of lawyers and scientists and policy experts who deal with energy policy, climate change, water pollution, endangered species, a whole, pretty much any issue you can, oceans, anything you can uh, think about. Not everything, but many, many things. 
And uh, I think what um, will happen, and you know, we as an organization have changed dramatically since the beginning. In the beginning, you know, it was a small group of lawyers from the Yale Law School and a number of others figuring out, you know, what are these environmental laws that are being passed? How do they get implemented? How do they get enforced? There was tremendous amount of litigation in the beginning and as the laws were interpreted uh, going forward. Uh, over time, we've really expanded what our array of disciplines are. We've really focused uh, increasingly on what are the solutions to these issues we, um, over the long term. And we've built capacity in communications, membership, activism, because we really realize that we can have a lot of policy expertise, but there have to be other tools brought to bear to create enough political muscle to get programs adopted. Um, so that has expanded us. We've also expanded globally. We have an office in Beijing, and we work in uh, India and Latin America uh, and pretty much all over the globe. But I think that um, not only will NRDC change uh, as time goes on, because that's what organizations do, but one of the most significant changes, which we talked about at the beginning, is really developing uh, stronger partnerships. You don't have to be an expert in everything, but there are experts that you can align with. And finding out, you know, who are your best partners. Uh, we've done a lot of work collaboratively within the environmental community. That's our community, and we've worked uh, very cohesively with other organizations for many, many years. But now we really recognize it's not just the environmental community. You know, we need to work much more broadly than that, and we are. And that's exciting. I mean, we created um, an affiliate body called Environmental Entrepreneurs a number of years ago, which is 800-plus uh, business leaders who are creating new products and that are sort of environmental uh, or um, business solutions for the environment. And they not only have, I think, an important business voice, but they work on public policy too because the different things that they're working on need a policy construct in order to be unleashed. So, you know, NRDC changes all the time. And uh, I think that's kind of one of the exciting things about being there is that every five years we kind of have a new model and we bring in a new discipline and a new area of expertise and we keep on going. Sounds like a, it sounds like a great place to work. It is a very great place to work. <laughs> um, and, and you started there as an intern and, and worked your way all the way up over 40 years. Um, we are all curious. What's your secret? <laughs> uh, well, um, I guess uh, staying power is one of them. But, you know, I, one of the things that's interesting, and I think this will happen as people develop their careers, as you uh, develop from one position to another, you begin to understand, you know, what are you good at? What do you like to do? And actually, one of the things that I like to do is uh, work on the broader institutional issues and make the whole place work uh, on, to the benefit of the staff. So NRDC has this incredibly talented staff. I can't even tell you what a joy it was to work with these people every day. I mean, they're smart. Uh, they're committed. They're, they're just fantastic. And so, you know, I felt that one of the things that I could really do for them was strengthen the organization in order for them to be successful. And I think that, you know, that was something I really enjoyed doing. And the organization, you know, is stronger for it, I, I think. And, you know, so all I'm saying is that as you go through a career, you know, when you get opportunities, and I had a great mentor, uh, NRDC's founder, John Adams, who, you know, kind of found me early and gave me lots of opportunities along the way. 
But each one is a learning experience. You know, as the organization grows, it, it, people say, how could you stay there for 40 years? Well, you know, NRDC 2015 is not what NRDC was in 1974. It's, you know, a global organization with many, many more disciplines across, uh, you know, working at the local, state, federal level. Litigation is an important part. It'll always be a really important part because it's such a powerful tool. But we have a lot of other tools that we've added on over the years. And um, uh, what do you think is next for you after uh, you're at the forestry school for a year or for the semester? Yeah, so I have this um, very generous, lovely McCluskey Fellowship, which has been uh, just wonderful to experience. And uh, it's actually given me an opportunity to think um, what I want to do next. I definitely, I, I feel like I've come full circle. I started as an advocate, and then I worked more on the institutional um, organizational development side. And now I can go back to being an advocate. And uh, one of the things I'm passionate about is really putting the climate solutions in place that we so desperately need. So I'll be looking uh, for ways to make a contribution in that area. For some of it, it'll be probably joining boards. I joined the board of Climate Central, which is an organization focused specifically on how you communicate clients climate science effectively, and others as well, and then we'll see. Actually, it's very fun. I'm having a great time. <laughs> sounds like a sounds like a great way to step back and and uh, keep an eye out for what's next. Um, do you think the uh, for solutions oriented work? Do you think the um, exciting areas are in business or are they in um, local governments or are they in state? governments have you have well you, you know it's interesting that? being here because I could tell from talking to the students that they don't think that the exciting place to be is the, is at the federal level and I think that the deadlock and dysfunction in Washington is very unfortunate because there are very important roles there but I haven't talked to that many people who want to go there uh, most people I talk to want to work uh, at the city or state level and I think there's a lot of innovation particularly in the cities now because I always say mayors are the people who can actually do things. They actually deliver services. They can make decisions. And there's a lot of creative thinking going on in cities right now. I mean, cities have been transformed. When I started in this field and I lived in New York, New York was a pretty dirty place People and a pretty dangerous place. People didn't really want to be there. You know, it was not kind of cities weren't the attractive place to go. And now, you know, people uh, who are graduating from school and graduate programs now, they all want to be livable, walkable, you know, wonderful urban experiences. And the cities have been transformed uh, as a result of that. And, you know, making them as efficient, uh, low energy, pedestrian, uh, accessible, uh, figuring out how to have um, food access. You know, there, there's just a lot of ways to be creative in those environments. And I think, you know, they're um, kind of test cases and when policies are developed that actually work, um, taking those to a number of other cities or to the state level. You know, all through the last 30 years, really, uh, California has been an incubator of change. So many of the environmental programs that uh, we have and that we've built up, even at the federal level, kind of grew out of, uh, you know, initiatives begun in California. Well, California is the eighth largest economy of the world. I mean, it happens to be one of the 50 states, but it's a huge enterprise. And, you know, looking at for opportunities like that, if you can get California and the states in the Pacific Northwest and the Reggie states together 
on climate strategy and climate solution, suddenly you're you're on your way. These are big states. They're a big part of the country. And they begin the change that may end up at the federal level. That's where I think, you know, eventually we will get uh, climate legislation at the federal level. And it'll be easier because of the Clean Power Plan and there'll be states plan, state plans in development. And, you know, there'll be a lot of innovative initiatives that are going on in the states. Also, the corporate sector. So um, I haven't worked in the corporate sector. Uh, it has changed a lot. Uh, over my 40 years of experience. Now there's a lot of innovation going on. I mean, every corporation has a sustainability office. I always think that, uh, though, important uh, sustainability or environmental policy in a corporation has to come from the top. A lot of these sustainability offices are sort of off to the side. I mean, you know, they're playing their role. They're doing their um, annual reports, et cetera. But where you want it really embedded is in the business strategy of the company. And the companies that are embedding, so for example, the tech companies that are really making these enormous contributions to solar and renewables for their data centers, that's very exciting to me because their scale is very, very big. Walmart's commitment to sustainability, which is you know, a big commitment but slow to realize, but they're still an enormous enterprise. You know, the, the military, the United States military is an enormous enterprise. Their uh, commitments to energy efficiency and renewable energy will incubate whole companies and changes that will be, you know, the harbingers of what the future is going to be in the energy sector. So, you know, to me, it's not kind of what sector you're in, it's what's the leverage in that sector? What's the position? Does it have leverage to really make change? If it does, it'll be an exciting place to be. So, so um, kind of building on that, um, um, speaking of making change at, at the state and local level and also in, in um, corporations, uh, looking forward to Paris, that's sort of the approach right. that we are seeing emerge for the upcoming uh, climate talks in Paris. And perhaps this is a good, good note to close on. Um, do you see that as, as an effective strategy and, and are you hopeful for what's coming out of Paris? Um, well, yes, I'm hopeful. I have to be hopeful. Paris has to uh, be a point in time that moves us forward. It's not going to be the end. It's really the beginning, but I think it's very significant. So Paris will be very different than Copenhagen. Copenhagen was really focused on the countries. This is focused on the countries and all of the other commitments. And, you know, all cities, companies, you know, institutions all over the world are making climate commitments to reduce emissions and get on a clean energy pathway. I think that's fantastic. I think the key to Paris is not only the commitments that are made there, but what mechanism is in place after Paris to actually hold all of these uh, entities that are making commitments accountable? What is the independent mechanism to ensure that these targets are being met, that these sustainability commitments are being met? Uh, I think it's very important to have a system of transparency, reporting, independent verification. In 1992 at the Rio summit, there were commitments made on forest, biodiversity, and climate. And, you know, many, many countries engaged in making those commitments, but they weren't realized and there was no real accountability. So to me, the, the, this is really um, not only what happens in Paris, but what's the mechanism after Paris? Because the commitments there will not get us to the 2% goal 
it will be a continuing process and there will have to be a system of you know constantly evaluating one of the commitments met and then what more do we need to do so you know i am hopeful i be you know one thing i find about those meetings is you go and there's so many people there from around the world who are so committed to making a difference on this issue. That's inspiring. And it will take all those people and more because there are all these people who aren't there who are deeply committed, as committed, working just as hard. So I am looking forward to it. I think it is a, uh, a point in time to get international attention, to get commitments, and that will be up to all of us to make sure that those commitments are realized. Well, we're I'm excited to see to see what comes out of it also and I, I hope that um I hope that we come up with a good mechanism to make sure those commitments stay in place. But I, I think you know, I I definitely agree with you that it's exciting to see everyone um, be solutions focused in this way. So that's very great. All right, well, um, I think that's about all the time we have. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been really uh, wonderful. I've I've really enjoyed getting to hear some of your experience and your wisdom and your knowledge from from the last uh, four decades of work, but also that you're you're excited and hopeful about the future. Well, 40 years from now, you'll be sitting here having the same interview. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you.